0: Hello. It's Holy Week, and on Monday the BBC launched its new 24-hour news channel, which brings together its UK and global coverage into one network, all part of the cost savings that the BBC needs to make, since the licence fee has been frozen for two years and inflation has been anything but frozen. The corporation needs to find over £400 million in annual cost savings by the end of the Charter in 2027-2028. Now, that's up from the original projected savings target of £285 million, according to its annual plan announced last week. That also spelled out a reduction in content commissions by 1,000 hours in 2023-2024. As the squeeze continues, staff at local BBC radio stations are set to strike for a second time over cuts to schedules and jobs. The date chosen is Friday the 5th of May, which coincides with local election results. Will the BBC still have a chairman by then? Surely the internal and external investigations into Richard Sharp must be produced soon. And just before we get to the second part of our interview with Peter Taylor, a big thank you to listeners who have come up with suggestions for our possible rebrand. Roger Bolton's Media Mix and Media Scrutiny with Roger Bolton were some of the suggestions, though one listener thought there was no need to rebrand. Your ideas are very welcome. So, back to our interview with the veteran BBC journalist Peter Taylor as we mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. Last week, we discussed his latest documentary based on his book, Operation Chiffon, the secret story of MI5 and MI6 and the road to peace in Ireland. It's an exploration of how MI5 and MI6 worked for a ceasefire with the IRA and how one meeting with Robert, an MI5 officer, changed, well, almost everything. This week, I'm going to delve into Peter's personal story as a journalist who has covered Ireland for half a century. Peter Taylor, welcome to the podcast. Last week, we talked about your latest book, Operation Chiffon, which in some ways is a culmination of, what should we say, 50 years of uh, reporting in Northern Ireland, a consummation, perhaps some would say. Um, uh, This week, can we talk about the way in which you began your coverage of Ireland? I mean, as I remember it, on Bloody Sunday... 1972 i remember i was in dublin doing an economic program for the money program and was told suddenly get out without explanation nobody will talk to you from the government i didn't even know about bloody sunday and you weren't in belfast or london area then where where were you on bloody sunday i was at my flat in london the background
1: is that we were planning because it was clear that there was going to be a strong likelihood of trouble on the march on bloody sunday because of the violence inflicted by the parachute regiment the previous Sunday. And we were planning to cover the march with three crews. One crew with the marchers, one crew with the security forces, and one crew just on a free range to go wherever it was necessary to go. The union, the ACT, a militant union, uh, wanted danger money from Thames Television, for whom I was then working for the This Week programme, wanted danger money, a lot of danger money. Thames Television, Jeremy Isaac, Sir Jeremy, refused to pay the money. So it was off. So we weren't there. One of the great waters of history. Had we been there with three crews, I don't think things would have been any different, but there would have been a...
0: A proper record of it, yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. So when I was sitting in my flat that Sunday afternoon and I put the radio on and heard on the news... What had happened and what was happening, I went, rang my editor, who was John Edwards at the time, a great editor, and said, "I've, you know, I've got to get over there. Look, we missed the opportunity." So I got on the next plane, arrived in Derry, didn't even know where Derry was or why it was called, you know, London Derry as well. Arrived there about ten o'clock that night. So I was there on physically there on bloody Sunday, but it had all happened. It was all over. But then. And then I did a film that was remarkable to have got transmitted because the Widgery Tribunal had been appointed, so anything about Bloody Sunday, who was subdued to say, we couldn't actually discuss it. So we did a film called Two Sides of a Story. I interviewed the IRA's commander of the Derry Brigade on Bloody Sunday, and Peter Williams, my colleague, interviewed the Paras. And there were two reels of film without any editing at all, fluffs and all, and we simply said, these are two accounts of this this tragedy. Have a listen, have a look and make up your mind. So that was my introduction. And I felt guilty that my soldiers, the paras, my in inverted commas soldiers, seemed to have been responsible for what appeared to have been a massacre, according to you know, people I was talking to in the bog side. And also I was so ignorant, you know, I was reasonably fresh out of university, knew nothing well, not nothing, but knew very little about Northern Ireland. And I felt guilty at my ignorance, and I thought I'd better try and find out. So I spent the next 50 years trying to do that.
0: (laughs) And I remember in those early days as well, I mean, I felt because I was brought up in uh, the very north of England and had been to Northern Ireland on holiday and things like that, and to some extent I identified with the evangelicals and the Protestants, whatever, I felt I quite understood them. But I didn't know much, if anything, about Ireland other than rather a romantic view of Yeats. And I noticed quite a number of people around me in broadcasting at that time made a a direct connection between what had been going on in the United States in terms of the fight for civil rights and what was happening in Northern Ireland. And indeed, the first 1968 marches were about civil rights. But people made that equation. But people didn't know anything much, if anything, about the complex history of Ireland. And I sort of woke up, and I think, was it like you, rather shocked by my ignorance that I'd got to a reasonable stage of adulthood and was ignorant. I mean, it, it was shock. I wasn't taught anything at school about this. The complexities were largely beyond me. That was the fascination. I, I knew nothing about the hinterland of of, of the problem. I
1: mean, How... How did this happen? And how did British soldiers shoot dead 13 unarmed civilians? Well, one was questionable uh, because he he allegedly had a nail bomb. Anyway, that's another story. So how did it happen? What was the history? And of course, you know, one goes back to, to Dublin, the Easter Rising in 1916, But then that arose from other circumstances in the 19th century that arose from the preceding X number of centuries. So it was only by it's like putting a a historical jigsaw together. And I refer to Robert in the end as the sort of missing link in the jigsaw of peace. You've got to understand, not you've got to, but to understand where we are now, where we may be going and where we've come from. Ideally, you've got to have some idea of what the historical background is,
0: and a lot of we didn't have it, and a lot of our colleagues didn't have it, and saw things in very simple terms. But they also said very reasonably, for example, well, when you go and make programs in Northern Ireland, the viewing figures go down, and uh, absolutely right. And you know, subsequently, uh, the thing that I first found most in a way demoralised about Brexit, whether you for or against, was the in the end that the British on the mainland, certainly English, remained woefully ignorant and uninterested mainly in the particular complications it created for Northern Ireland. And I felt angry about that. Do you feel still rather angry that the British as a whole, let's say the mainland British, don't l- bother to learn enough about the complexity of the situation in Ireland?
1: I think that's true, but I think... My own feeling is, and, and this is, you know, confirmed by just having done a series of interviews and events talking about the book and talking about exactly the kind of thing that we're talking about. I believe, and have long believed, that there is a section of the British public, and in particular, a section of the BBC license payers, who actually do want to know, who do want to understand, who, you know, who do want to have some kind of guidance to explain what is happening, why it's happening, and what the implications of it are. And you, as my editor on on Panorama, always encourage me to do that.
0: But there were a lot of people, I wrote of reporters, who actually didn't want to go. And uh, and we should be blunt about this. It's not as if, you know, uh, they would go if it was a massive explosion, but the rest of the time they didn't want to be there. And you stayed. And one of the things that really impressed me but i i slightly puzzled me is that um you decided not just to go frequently and make programs you know when you got some downtime you would say can i go and just go and talk to people so you went back and you went back and fortunately in the early days the bbc could fund you so you weren't just arriving when things had happened you were there when in a sense things weren't happening but you decided not to devote your life to it because you did lots of great programs about other not not only smoking and a <laughs> whole raft of other things, but consistently, if you had any spare time, you went back. Why did you do that? It was slightly obsessive, was it? What, what was it? It was
1: obsessive, and I wanted to know more. I wanted to develop the you know the contacts without which you and I, Roger, you know can't can't do our jobs. And also, the situation was getting worse and worse and worse. And I'd always tried not to be a a sort of fire brigade person who went in when the situation got critical. But I just wanted to keep tabs on what was happening. And the only way you can find out what is happening is by talking to people and building up those relationships. And I was very lucky at Thames Television and also un, under you at that time. Uh, in the uh, in the 80s uh, and then in the 90s, when I could say, look, I'd like to go over because I just, you know, things are happening and I can't find out about them here. So, you know, I need to go over.
0: Uh, but also the other thing that was going on, Peter, is you were not telling me things correctly because the only way, <laughs> you were right not to, in the sense, and you're... You know, Let's take Brendan Dudley, for example, who is the key businessman who was facilitating conversations from a very early, early stage between the British government and Sinn Féin IRA. You knew about him, what, 10 years before you made a programme about him? You kept it to yourself. So uh, that was a very delicate judgment, wasn't it? When you were talking to people, you were, they, in order to talk to them, they had to believe that you would keep the confidence even from your employers. How did you do that?
1: I I did it by keeping my word. I said to Brendan Duddy when I first met him, which was around the time of the Good Friday Agreement, and he told me his amazing story about the back channel and secret talks with Seamus Toomey and the IRA, and I just couldn't believe it. And I said to him the following day, you know, last night, and, and several glasses of Irish whiskey were consumed and I don't drink whiskey normally so I was a bit hungover but I saw him again the following day and said Brendan your story you know is amazing and I'd love to tell it can I do it he said no that I've told you what I've told you strictly off the record it's between you and me and if and when the time is right I'll let you know and you can tell my story. And that was ten years later, so I never told anybody. And it was the same with Robert.
0: There'd be several journalist who stood at us, Peter, and saying, What? You've got a scoop on your hands, and you sit on it for ten years, and yet if you hadn't, it would have been not the end of your reporting, but it would have severely damaged it, wouldn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely, because the word is the bond, and people will only talk to you or us if they can trust us. And I kept Brendan's secret for 10 years before, with his permission, finally, I revealed his name and then did the documentary The Secret Peacemaker. It was the same with Robert. When I got the letter from Robert and actually went to see him, he he wanted to talk about what he, why he was prepared in principle to talk. But he said there was to be no interview. I mean, that's how it started. And it was building up the relationship over six months to a year with Robert that enabled me in the end to do the interviews with him for the book. And at the time there was no mention of a television program and my head of department, when I told her what I'd done, I'd actually met Robert and and she was you know, vaguely familiar with the backstory. She said, and I'd interviewed him. She said, I always remember, is there a television program? <laughs> and I said, I think it's highly unlikely, but let's wait and see what happened. So it's getting people's confidence and critically keeping it that enabled me and my colleagues and and you as well, Roger, to do
0: what we do. But going back to the early days, I mean, I can remember on the IRA side, for example, they must have been intensely suspicious of you. I mean, I remember going in 1974, making a film as a producer with a reporter I won't name, in Crosma Glen. Before we went, we went to get a briefing at the uh, Minister of Defence, and um, and which was fine, you know. And then the guy was briefing and said, oh, by the way, we want you to look out. Would you mind looking out for this particular piece of equipment? And then would you come back and debrief us? Absolutely, but I'm not sure what my reporter did. That's why I won't mention his name. But I thought, whoops! Now that is the line, and but you know, some people will have gone over that line and the IRA when they're you know, see Peter Taylor initially in the early stages coming through the door, are thinking, hm what's he gonna do?
1: That did happen to me, Roger, like it happened to you. I was filming in Straban for a film called Remember Straban in about nineteen seventy five and the IRA were hanging out in a pub across across the river in Straban. And we wanted to do some helicopter shots. So I got in touch with the military and, and said, can you, you know, give us a lift in your chopper so we can do some top shots? And he said to me, I'll tell you what, we'll give you the lift in the helicopter and you're staying across the, across the river in the intercountist, I think it was called. He said, if I were to show you some photographs of people who are hanging out there, the people being IRA people, can you identify them for us? And I said, forget the helicopter ride.
0: But a lot of people will not have done that. And therefore, the the IRA must have been intensely suspicious of you. And there were, not to put it politely, some psychopaths around, unfortunately. Did you ever feel really in great physical danger?
1: I felt in greater danger from the loyalists, who were more unpredictable, because the IRA, the Republican movement, is an intensely a sort of centralised organisation. And I, <laughs> you know this, Roger, from your experience on on Carrickmore, that uh, if you are told that an incident is going to happen, as happened with you at Carrickmore, come along and you may see something interesting, or whatever the phraseology was, and it's happened to me as well. You go along and you see a roadblock, mass men with guns, and you film it because you simply come across it. When you do that, it's possible because they want the publicity, but also it's possible for you to do it or for me to do it because you know that, fingers crossed, you're in safe hands with loyalists. In other words, nothing's going to happen to you. And Robert said to me when I asked him about going to the meeting in the Dark night in the bogside to meet McGuinness. W- was he frightened? He said, "No, no, because I was going to discuss peace. I wasn't going to spy on them, and therefore I was safe." So, but with loyalists, it was different. It was much edgier. They were not as trusting. But in the end, I managed to get their confidence because after we did the provost series about you know the history origins of the IRN Sinn Fane. Loyalists said, and they got big viewing figures in Northern Ireland, Loyalists, we went to them to say, you know, what about your side of the story? They jumped at the opportunity because they wanted their story to be told in the same way as Robert wanted his story to be told. So the participants in the conflict want their side of the story to be told and you can accept it or you can reject it, but it's there on the record. And I think being in a position to reflect those different elements of one story is a privilege that you know that i've had and you've had as well and that's part of our, our job to try and explain to people why we are where we are and where we may or may not be going and that's the job of journalism but it takes a long time and it's all based on trust on reliability also on the willingness of the broadcasting organisation, be it Thames Television in the 70s or the BBC latterly, to give you the freedom, the space and critically, the resources to find out. And that's what, you know, is increasingly difficult
0: uh, and the big problem now is they want to know the end product before you started the research which by definition if you do anything original you can't do but the other thing is i mean i had i don't want to make anything obvious but i had a few you know when i said to a few death threats now they were you know the ink stuff whatever and this is before digital media but they were there you must have received them and it's one thing for us to, when well, and I, I can't compare my record with you, I was not there remotely as much and whatever, but it's one thing for us to go there and experience it and understand what it is, another for family and friends and children at home to understand what's going on. That must have been a continued burden, wasn't it? The apprehension of your family.
1: I was always concerned about what my late wife Sue felt about my doing it, but she She knew why I was doing it and she was supportive of what I did in the same way as my, you know, my present partner, Irene, is supportive of (laughs) all that it took to write Operation Shift on and to make the programme. And it meant my becoming a recluse, effectively, because, you know, what it's like Roger writing a book. It's an intensely personal, isolating, lonely business. So my children and my late wife Sue, were very supportive. They were always concerned something untoward may happen and luckily it never did. But without the support of of family and also the support of the people you're working with, like Roger Bolton, editor of Panorama. And although you weren't there as often as I was in Northern Ireland, I could not have done those programmes without the support of you, the editor, who push things through in the teeth of sometimes considerable objection because not another Peter Taylor, but he's done it, you know, and and the viewing figures do not justify
0: <laughs> do not justify the expense, but that's the viewing figures. But is there, sorry, is there a sense, I want to interrupt you now though, that you have done it? I mean, I thought you know when the Good Friday Agreement was announced, and then the sight of the Chuckle Brothers, uh, you know, Martin McGillis and Ian Paisley together, I thought. Oh, Peter will now re- return his attention to a raft of other things he's interested in. You know, you did some br- Brigham's about connection uh, smoking. we uh, of course, saw to other international terrorist groups and so on. And, of course, we're wrong. I mean, in a sense, it never ends, does it? I mean, look at the situation now. When we're speaking, oh, you know, there's a real worry about uh, what is about to happen, perhaps, in the North. The security alerts are at a very high level, in a sense. Are you finished now at the age of 81? Are you finished with Ireland or can you see another another programme coming up? That's a good
1: question that I haven't resolved yet. It's of, um, something I've been thinking about and I think my, my view would be if there's something that needs covering and something that needs explaining and the question, you know, are we really on the road to Irish unity or is Irish unity a thing of the past? Those sort of big questions, I think, still need covering. Something will happen, you know, there will be another atrocity at at some stage, probably at the hands of dissidents who are, you know, dangerous, deeply committed. I mean, I've met the dissidents and have filmed with their political wing They are dangerous. They are a threat. I don't think we're ever going to return to those dreadful days that you and I covered. But the threat is distinctly there. And my worry at the moment is there is no democratic accountability. As a result of Brexit and the protocol, there is no devolved government. The whole thing is on hold because the DUP are refusing to go back into Stormont and without that there can be no devolved administration. And I thought that the DUP, because Geoffrey Donaldson, you know, is a politician and he knows what the options are, I would have thought they would have reluctantly agreed to the carefully negotiated Rishi Sunak Windsor framework. And I think the problem for the DUP is, and they must realise this, or perhaps they don't, that by holding out, which appeals to their you know, grassroots constituents, and there is an election coming up in May, they are, in a way, almost doing the Republican movement, Sinn Féin's job for it, because they will be accused of being the wreckers, bearing in mind that the majority of... People in Northern Ireland did not vote Brexit. They voted 56, 57% to remain. So there is instability. That's what worries me. And instability, as we know from history, breeds violence. And violence breeds death, makes politics almost irrelevant. But at the heart of it, Politics remain, and that's why the way forward, the only way forward in Northern Ireland, on the island of Ireland, is via politics. And that's the lesson of the past 30, 40, 50 years that politics are central. And if there are no politics, there are problems.
0: The problem is that generations have to learn it for themselves, don't they? This is the real worry that as the generation that you've reported on starts to fade away. And their first-hand testimonies, their first-hand testimonies fade. There's a danger of forgetting, and that's why why we should always keep reporting, shouldn't we? And there are also, one other thing I wanted to ask you, though. There have got a lot of people in Northern Ireland now in their 70s, maybe with grandchildren, and, and actually and former British intelligence people who did terrible things in causes they may on all sides of regard as just, but they know terrible things. And they know there are some grandchildren who were never born as a result of what they did. Do you find a lot of disturbed people of, let's say, our age who were involved in things which they now deeply, deeply regret?
1: The answer is yes, yes, I do. And recently, having been in
0: Belfast
1: and in Dublin, Talking about the book and the program, there were people who came up to me who, I would say, admitted being in the IRA. But but it's you know it was no secret because all that is, is history. They had no reg- no regrets about what they did. They did it as in their lights as it was their responsibility. It was a military organisation. They were quote soldiers. So those that I met most recently who are my generation and several of them you know had been interned which tells tells you how old they are and others had been in the maze they had no regrets about you know what they had been through and what they had quote suffered and i don't think i, I don't know this because my time talking to them was was limited but i doubt if they had any regrets about their involvement in the so-called armed struggle so that's the sort of hard hard reality i also as i've got this opportunity to put you on the record thank you for rescuing me from from thames television i had terrible problems yeah yeah i was censored (laughs) several programs as you know um and then you rescued me and you supported me in what I did and encouraged me across the board, not just on Ireland, but in particular on Ireland. And it was that that kept me going, developed my interest, developed my contacts. And without, and this is an application to, I think, to all journalists and broadcasting institutions, that journalists should be given if possible, all the support and all the financial support necessary to enable them to do the job that they're paid to do and want to do, which is to illuminate this incredibly complex problem, which hasn't gone away. It's still there, Roger, as you well know. And that's the responsibility that we have as a BBC journalist. That's you know my responsibility to the licence payers and also to the wider public. But we can only do it with institutional support. And also, you know, (laughs) I'm referred to as a, you know, as a veteran, which, uh, you know, (laughs) I regard as as a badge of honour. But I think also the experience of people of my generation and sadly, you know, when I look at the people, my colleagues, you know, who've left the BBC, the BBC is in danger of losing that critical level of experience which, you know, we pass on, we veterans want to pass on, are eager to pass on to the next generation of the next generation, but one. And just one thing that occurs to me about, uh, you mentioned, you know, grandchildren of the troubles, what do people feel? I always remember, and I had many sort of off-the-record conversations with Martin McGuinness. I remember McGuinness telling me at one stage in his front parlour, which is probably bugged anyway, he said he really didn't want his grandchildren to have to go through what he and his family and his community had been through. And I think, you know, that can be readily dismissed, but I think that's genuine. And I think the thing about McGuinness is that he was, he was genuine and a senior person said to me very, very recently what a remarkable figure he was historically. And I think it was rooted in what he and his community had been through, and the same applies on the loyalist side as well. The case of unionism and loyalism almost went by default for many, many years. And that, and if I look back on on coverage of the conflict and my own coverage, and I think it, I hope it was sort of compensated when I did the three four-part series on loyalist, is that the loyalist case has almost gone by default. The focus has been on on Republicans and nationalists on that side of the story. And that's why coming back to the Good Friday Agreement, which is 25th anniversary is, is upon us, was so important because loyalists actually took part in it and David Trimble took enormous risks in doing what he did. And that's why it's depressing and worrying to see that unionists are now holding the key to the restoration of democratic politics
0: in the North. Peter Taylor, I'd love to talk forever and ever, but but keep on, Peter. We, We need another film and another book. Thank you very much indeed for talking to me.
1: Thank you, Roger. And thank you for all your support over many, many years.
0: And that's it for this week. We're away next week, but back again the week after. Do let us know whom you would like us to interview in the next series and the issues we should be covering. And please do financially support us. It costs less than £2 per month and keeps our podcast ad-free. It's very simple to do so, and you can find the link in the description of this programme on our website, along with how you can contact us. And if you didn't know already, this podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it was produced by Kate Dixon. The sound was by Clifton Bank Studios, and special thanks to Quingenti. It was a good egg production. Have a very happy Easter. Until next time, goodbye.